Hey there, Hit Like a Girl Pod listeners. We've got some exciting news that's too good to keep to ourselves. You all know Grace Minton, whose stories have captivated us over the past couple years. Well, Grace has been doing such an amazing job with her show, High Tea with Grace, that it's time for her to shine even brighter. Yes, you heard that right. High Tea with Grace has graduated to its own show with its own brand new RSS feed. While we've loved sharing Grace's episodes as special bonuses on the Hit Like a Girl pod, it's now time to give Grace the spotlight she deserves. So what does that mean for you? To continue enjoying the compelling stories and insights from Grace, head over to your favorite podcast platform and hit that subscribe button for High Tea with Grace. Trust us, you don't want to miss out on what she has in store. Her latest series is dedicated to understanding the VC funding world, aka Fund Like a Girl. Thank you for supporting us, and let's show some love for Grace on her exciting new journey. Remember, search for High Tea with Grace and subscribe today. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts. Today, we're talking with Erin Jospi, Chief Medical Officer of Kairos. Listen to her discuss her background as a medical expert, her self-directed journey in health IT, and about the lipstick sign of patients that can't be documented as structured data in any EMR. Here we go. I'm an internist by training, and after about 17 years in practice, I kind of made the jump into the vendor space full-time. I sort of came to it not because of any burning entrepreneurial spirit that I ever had, but it was kind of one opportunity led to another. It first began with an opportunity to join in the quality and safety space at my organization. And that was really my first taste of using data to try and change people's behaviors. So as a primary care doctor, a lot of what I do is to try and educate people to change their behaviors long term. And this was really a means by which to change how providers could do things differently, either more efficiently with greater empathy because they had more bandwidth for that because they weren't afraid of doing something wrong. And there were little opportunities along the way. Um, My own advice was I became a biller. Uh, I actually became a licensed coder um, because I didn't want to commit fraud accidentally. Um, And so it was, again, that kind of heady education is power, how to do the right thing. And then from the quality and safety standpoint, it was a much uh, broader field in which to do that. Um, Learned a lot about how to present data, how to tell stories, how to not tell a story without data, and how not to try and change behavior with just the data and no story to go with it. Um, From there, I actually became a product manager in the vendor space, leveraging that coding background as well as the quality and safety to look at documentation. I just really like my patients' stories, and I think that part of the satisfaction in the practice of medicine is really being able to connect with other human beings at the level of their story. So how to do that within an EHR is an ongoing struggle that many people have, and so I tried to take a stab at it that way. Um, With the birth of meaningful use 
the resources at my company kind of switched from documentation and over more into CPOE. So not being very good at sitting idly, uh, I kind of got exposed more and more into the prospect space with our sales team. They felt that I knew some secret clinician handshake and could um, sway different um, stakeholders. And my presence actually would encourage them to get those stakeholders in those conversations earlier. And that was a really important piece for me in this puzzle. Um, I certainly felt as a provider that a lot of health IT is done to us and not with us. And so having that opportunity to kind of direct product that way, to bring back what it was I was seeing, to make those connections and hear those stories and make sure that that was being reflected in the functionality we were aiming for was a really great opportunity. And I think that's what has really continued um, to fire my passion in the space. That's excellent. You know, you say that you know, being in medicine gave you some credibility, but also when you made the leap from that space, it sounds like you also did a ton of just self-directed learning. Was that for you trying to gain credibility and just know what you were doing or what what made you geek out on these other things? Um, so it is the fear of not knowing and potentially being called upon, right? So as it's terrible to generalize, but I think that a lot of providers fall into that category, a little type A, a little, um, you know, need to know. And uh, so I think that was that was it, you know. I was thinking about this conversation and one of the stories that came back to me was when I was actually still in medical school and I had a very wonderful mentor who I admired greatly. She was just such a dynamic person in reproductive endocrinology and she just made such connections with her patients. She was brilliant. She was publishing and she had small children. And so um, I was actually helping out with her kids one day and she, she came home and her son, who was seven at the time, um, said, he was obsessed with Martha Stewart, why, why don't you do the things that Martha does? And she said, well, I, I do a lot of different things. And by the way, you know, Martha has a lot, of, a lot of help. And he says, no, sometimes she has friends on, but usually it's just Martha. And <laughs> I, like, I think about that story actually a lot. It, it does take a lot of friends along the way. It's being inspired. It's allowing yourself to be inspired by the different people that you're encountering. It, it has to do with leaving the path, right? So especially I think in medicine, we're very geared towards that delayed gratification of what's the next step. Everything is about waiting for that next step. And I think when you allow yourself to have friends off of that path and allow yourself to be seduced a little bit by the, the other opportunities that are there, you really are in a position to contribute differently and expand your own skill set. But you also had the opportunity, you called it out, that health IT is often done to providers and not with them. So it also gave you an opportunity, it sounds like, to influence in reverse. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that that's a drum that I continue to beat. Um, it's making sure that your clinicians are, in fact, acknowledged as stakeholders in that conversation. Um, you know, there's a lot of different competing mandates that are out there without a lot of tools that help you speak to them. And I think that that has done more to harm the physician's self of satisfaction and competency than anything. And I think that's in large part what brought me to Kairos. It was that opportunity 
as a mission to say the patient experience is not diametrically opposed to the provider's experience. And in fact, we should do what we can to elevate that dyad, um, to give a vocabulary to providers as well as to patients to make it a meaningful opportunity to engage. So is there, without sharing any patient data, obviously, but do you have any stories or examples of some of the um, patient stories through the EHR or even maybe through Christ that you would um, give give as an example? I think what what I would start with is just in, in my own life, frankly, just three weeks ago, a very dear friend of mine who is very savvy in the healthcare system, had, had worked in healthcare administration for years, was diagnosed with cancer. And this is somebody, again, who absolutely understands healthcare. And the complexity in trying to get the right appointment to be able to say that my experience is more than just an appointment. How I'm going to be cared for by a team is something that should matter. And sort of educating her that that's okay to want that and to interview and to make sure that you're going to end up with that. It's heartbreaking to me that we still need that kind of handholding to get people through the system. At the same time, you've got clinicians who feel so frustrated and overwhelmed by their inability to make the connections the way they want to and to help navigate that. She actually had a wonderful gastroenterologist who really tried to do the right thing and said, you know, you'll be hearing from, I left a message, you should be hearing from the surgeon's office tomorrow, but it didn't happen. And so that frustration of not knowing who to help your patients to find, the inability to help smooth that along, um, the patient sort of being buffeted by the different currents, I think that that's, that's an ongoing struggle. I think remembering that as an executive in health IT is really important. Everybody's a patient. Everybody loves a patient. Um, how, how can we make that better? Um, how can we do the right thing? You know, there was a statement and a tweet that had a lot of traction earlier this week talking about the difference between patients are not all created equal. Mm. That that patient with either a, you know, a terminal disease versus somebody with a lower level of acuity stepping into urgent care for strep throat, right? right? How do you feel like that plays into people with that lower level of acuity? These routine kind of matters or well visits or things like that. What do you think we could be doing different even in that space for those patients? So I, especially in primary care, like we all went into it because we love those longitudinal relationships. And so it feels a little weird to be told that somebody might just want to see you once for their strep throat and they want that treated right away. Um, you know, since this is a, a hit like a girl, right? UTIs are super common. Why should you have to wait more than five minutes to have that addressed, right? That's something that needs immediate attention. You cannot focus on your work. You cannot take care of the people in your life that you might need to be taking care of, let alone yourself in that moment, right? So, uh, yep, that's great that you've got a relationship with somebody. Take care of me now. And, And I think that we need to be open to the need for that immediate gratification. I... Um, I bristle a little bit when people say, well, that's a millennial thing, that millennials want to be seen right away. You know what? When it's your back that's thrown out, when it's your UTI, when it's your kidney stone, you you just want that done now. I don't care how old you are. Um, So I think that there are times in your life and your life cycle as a patient where having a longitudinal relationship is going to be more important. Um, And there are other times where it's not necessary. 
But I think that having that common thread, I think having a system that knows you, even if it's not necessarily the same person, is really important. And so in order to do that, you need to capture patient stories, not just their demographics. You need to really be able to pick up wherever anybody left off. And um, I don't know that we do such a great job. I think that's aspirational. Um, I think there are a bunch of us who trained a while ago who like to think that way and, and hope that others will continue to do so. But the tools at our disposal to make that happen aren't great. I think they're getting better. Um, I think that people are trying to come up with other things that will help smooth that process. But I've certainly had patients where knowing them has made taking care of them feasible. So I'll call it the lipstick sign. I had a patient um, who had a number of complex illnesses and um, I saw her with some significant regularity every couple months uh, at least. And she came in to see me and it was the first time I saw her not completely put together. She always wore lipstick and had her hair done and was always dressed looking much more meticulous than I did. And this was the first time I saw her and she wasn't wearing lipstick. And if you didn't know her, you wouldn't have thought anything about that. Um, but I could look at her and see that something wasn't right. And that's, I don't know how to capture that. And I don't, I don't want that to go away. Um, it might have to, but I think that that's, um, that's a really precious part of not just your relationship with a patient, but it's also a precious part of your ability to take care of someone to the best of your competencies. And there's not really a place in the EHR for that. No, there's no lipstick category or, you know, if she's not looking like this, you know, you know that there's something wrong. And particularly with issues around mental health say in that case you know she was just feeling incredibly sad that day how do you how do you elicit that otherwise and i do think we have an incredible crisis in access for mental health in this country and knowing your providers helps to start to erode some of those stigmas and helps to pave some of the way to make inroads um, so i worry a little bit about that that said, I still think there's a huge place for that. I need an appointment now, and it really doesn't matter who's taking care of me. You said a couple things that I think brings us to our next question. <laughs> if you could snap your fingers mm -hmm. and have some aspect of health IT just fixed. Oh, wow. I don't want to run out the tape. <laughs> um, <laughs> just one thing. Or top three. So top three... I would say severing documentation from billing would probably be the, I like the, it. the first thing I would do. Again, I think it devalues that story. When I was teaching coding, this is probably too much of a story, but um, when I was teaching coding at my organization, uh, because they thought it would be softer coming from another clinician to a clinician, um, my son, who was young at the time, was watching me kind of grade these, these notes as to how, how well documented they were. And he said, well, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm trying to teach providers how to tell stories. And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, if I told you that this patient had a sinus infection 
what would you think? He said, I would think that she had a sinus infection. I said, okay. And what would happen if I told you that this woman came in and she was teary because she hasn't slept in two days because her little kid is in daycare and they've been sick and now she's sick and she has green nastiness coming out of one side of her face and her teeth hurt. Which is a better story? He's like, the second one. I was like, yep. So <laughs> how do we, how do we um, make sure that patients feel heard? Because that's really what telling a good story is about. Um, it's making sure that people feel heard, not just translating it into medical jargon. Um, and so fixing that, I, I think, would go a long way in restoring patients' faith in their providers. Um, and I think it would give back perhaps a little bit of the joy to providers themselves. You know, I think the first thing I learned in healthcare from a clinical side was really about the basics of a SOAP note. That mm -hmm. S being subjective, O objective, A assessment, P plan. And even as a patient sometimes, I feel like that S part, the brevity with which it's addressed sometimes by so many clinicians, it's all about the OPE without the, the S in front of SOAP yeah. sometimes. So I love that aspiration to sever documentation from billing. So what's two and three? Two and three. Well, I think um, the other thing I would say is perhaps making it easier, because this is magical thinking now. Okay. Yes. Um, oh, yes, lots of magic. Ma magical thinking, I think pattern recognition is one of the hardest parts of dealing with data. And now that there's so many sources of data, competing sources for the same data, of unclear accuracy, and as providers, we're flooded with it. And so being able to recognize the wheat from the chaff, I think, is is part of the skill of medicine. But it's getting so much harder with just the, um, the amount of information that can be gleaned, not even factoring in your wearable devices and where those things should fit in as well. Um, so I think uh, tools that can help separate the patterns um, to help us acknowledge and recognize uh, disease earlier and better would probably be up in my top three too. I like that because it's not quite interoperability, it's like leveraging interoperability for the gold nugget. That's right. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. <laughs> um, but. It's certainly, there are lo there's lots of data that I don't think is important that just not having that noise and being able to shut that off so that I could see Well, now you've got to tell us what like. the garbage is, Erin. What's the garbage data? Oh. Tell our listeners. What do you want to throw away? Oh, I could make some enemies here. It's kind of a loaded question. I think um, looking at the inpatient side, there's a lot of nursing assessments, for example, that are done at the bedside that I think, um, I, I'm not even convinced that they create value for the nursing side of the house. Um, I think it's a lot of administrative work um, that has unclear benefit. Um, so even just being able to separate that out from, from notes would be good. Um, but if what I'm looking for is a particular type of data, if I just being able to filter on particular labs within a particular time frame or images, um, just being able to find that so often, like we'll get scanned PDFs of things. I, I don't know, how do I go about finding the echocardiogram that the patient thinks they had in, in 2011, maybe? How can I make that easier to find that? 
How can I create a clear way to understand what my next steps should be as the, as the receiving provider after someone has seen them already, instead of having it buried within a different type of narrative or a different structure? Um, so I guess that's, that's where I would start. Um, and of course, going back to my, my nursing colleagues, I think, again, asking them, I, I think having the opportunity for them to weigh in as to which of their activities have true value for patient care would probably go a long way towards increasing nursing satisfaction as well. Oh yeah, between that and the staff shortage, I mean, come on. Yeah. What can we do to obsolete things that aren't meaningful and useful, not just for physicians, but even the patient, for goodness sake? Oh yeah. How many times have we asked patients to fill out the same form in three different ways you oh, know, yeah. before being seen? No so, one enjoys that. No. Yes. On the same day. All right, what's well, third what on the next? <laughs> wow, we are creating a reading list. So. No, she said she has three fixes. we got to oh, get no, to the no, third no. fix. Uh, What's the third another, and final fix? And we have one last question. Another fix. Um, within the EHR or just in whatever the magical universe of health IT wants to be Okay, fixed. well, I, I would be remiss then if I did not acknowledge the great disconnect, as with my friend with, um, with this new diagnosis, um, of making it easier to have an idealized patient experience that was informed by health IT and, and smoothed by health IT rather than obstructed and obfuscated. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that that's, that's probably my number one. Um, because I do think it's that patient experience of being able to identify the right provider for a provider to be able to identify the right provider um, and make that better, I think, is at the core of of what we do and enabling people to be successful. Um, As a patient who is empowered to help themselves improve, as well as a provider who wants to give the best clinical care possible. Wonderful answers. Thank you. Thank you. So we're putting together a reading list. Is there anything that is on your reading list at the moment or any books that have uh, made a big impact for you that you think that others should also read? Um, So um, presuming that we're talking the the professional, not the um, entertainment type of reading, um, (laughs) which I also believe in. If you want to give us one of each, that's cool too. I'll I'll give you a couple. So... um, One of um, one of my mentors it was a privilege to to take a course with him is a gentleman named Jerry Cranes who wrote a book called Accountability Leadership that I that I love um, so particularly as a woman in healthcare as a woman in health IT the opportunity to become a leader and how to how to really do that and your earlier question about like it sounds like you educated yourself a lot um, it's it's hard and I think healthcare still continues to just take people who are really good, nice doctors and then put them into positions of administration and where are the tools that you need to be successful that way. So Jerry was wonderful and I really look to his book. I, I find myself going back to that all of the time. And frankly, it's it's grounded in how I like to think I engage with patients as well. Um, you know, how do you set the context for the problem that you're trying to solve instead of just dictating what the solution is? And so that's a, that's a wonderful read. I also really like Switch by... 
I think it's Chip and Dan Heath. Mm -hmm. um, again, I think it's a much more optimistic approach to change management than many other approaches that I've seen. Um, one that's both empathetic and starts with a question of, you know, well, what's going right? Uh, and I feel, again, um, just my interactions with patients, that should always be where you start. And I think when you're trying to change anybody's behavior, uh, that's also a really good place. Presuming that it's all just garbage is, is never, um, it never wins you friends and it makes people feel bad. And so I think really acknowledging that, that people have already contributed to their own betterment is, is a great place to begin. All right, last question and thank you for everything so far. If somebody wanted to find you, where would they look? Online, obviously. Social media, LinkedIn, yeah, social media. Facebook. Oh, yes. What are your handles? Um, so I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on, uh, yeah, I think LinkedIn is probably my, my biggest social media. As much as I want to be on Twitter, I'm only a viewer, not a contributor, because I don't want to, I don't want to misstep. But yeah, I think um, probably LinkedIn is the greatest place, the easiest place to find me. Okay. And if people want to know more about the company you're working for, where do they find Oh, yes, please look us up. Kyrus, it's spelled K-Y-R-U-U-S dot com. And it's a great company, one that I'm very proud to work with and, and for. Excellent. Erin, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, Thanks for having pleasure. me. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or this guest, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes. Or simply tell a friend. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hitlikeagirlpod. Thanks again. See you soon.